Hello, real people. I'm Ashley Brewer, your host for today's episode number 23 with Dana Hansen. Dana Hansen and her two siblings, Casey and Bryce, experienced a traditional Midwest upbringing, being raised by their parents on the family farm. Dana's childhood memories include 4-H, watching Saturday Nebraska Cornhuskers football games, and helping her mom prepare for family gatherings. Their family bond continued well into adulthood. In fact, Dana and Casey even lived together for a while and shared a love of sports, Netflix, and dogs. One day in 2017, their family's lives changed forever when Dana's sister Casey had a heart attack. The days that followed Casey's heart attack came with a whirlwind of emotions and decisions for the family, and they were devastated when Casey passed away. Today, they do everything they can to keep Casey's legacy moving forward. Dana's mother and cousin even started Casey's Kindness Acts on Facebook, where people do and share random acts of kindness in memory of Casey. A few disclaimers before we get started. This show covers a wide variety of topics related to mental health and life in general. These topics can be difficult for some people, so use your best judgment when listening to the show. We're not therapists, counselors, or mental health professionals. Information shared on this show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Never ignore professional medical advice because of something you heard on this show. Now, this story is raw, heartfelt, and includes almost every emotion on the spectrum. Episode 23, Dana Hansen. Here we go. Welcome to Real Stories, Real People, a personal journal, mental health, and self-improvement podcast where we're shattering stigma one story at a time. We're committed to talking about the tough things in life so that others can find hope. So tune in and hang on, because here we go. Dana, so welcome to Real Stories, Real People. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. So we just met a couple of weeks ago through a mutual friend, and you so graciously shared your story with me a couple of weeks ago. And first of all, I just want to thank you for trusting us with your story. Uh, I know sometimes the topics aren't the easiest topics to talk about, so I appreciate you being willing to do that in a public format like this. I love painting a picture for our guests and our listeners about you and who you are as a person and what life was like for you. So I would love it if you could talk to us a little bit first about what life was like for you growing up. Yeah, so we grew up um, on a farm uh, in northeast Nebraska, and my sister Casey was the oldest of us children, and then we have a brother, Bryce, he was the middle child, and then I was the baby of our family. And we were pretty close growing up, I'd say. You know, some of the, you know, when I think back to our childhood, a lot of things I think about are we uh 
were members of 4-H. So yeah. we, we were involved in the county fair every summer. And my dad is a hog farmer. So we showed hogs <laughs> at the county fair. So that was just something that we did like every summer growing up. Totally yep. a normal thing if you're from like Nebraska, <laughs> Iowa, South Dakota. We have listeners yes. all over the world. They might be sitting there going, what is this 4-H thing? But <laughs> what Dana is explaining is perfectly normal in our neck of the woods. So <laughs> Right. It was kind of almost like a social gathering too. Like that was where we saw people that we maybe hadn't seen all summer because we were out of school. And so anyway, it, it was um, a lot of fun. And some other memories that I have are my family's a big uh, Nebraska Cornhusker fan. Yeah, so we (laughs) like their football team, even though it can be kind of tough to be a Husker fan. (laughs) But uh, if you're born into it, it's just kind of that's just uh, just kind of the way it is. So you're you're painting the picture of what I I always see as like your traditional Midwest family like you good meat and potatoes on the farm <laughs> yep. doing 4h loving the sports team even if they're not the best so <laughs> yeah. I, I love that now you mentioned that with your siblings you had the normal sibling rivalry but you you were pretty close overall together um, we were always supportive of each other and spent spent a lot of time together. We always came together for holidays, you know, even after we all went off to college. And that's awesome. Now, when you and I met and talked through your story last time, you talked to me about your sister, Casey, and a diagnosis that she has. I'd like for you to talk a little bit to our to me and to our audience about this. So my sister was diagnosed with Turner syndrome. Um, Back in her, I want to say it was like in her elementary days, like maybe later elementary, like fifth or sixth grade, she was diagnosed with this Turner syndrome. And what it is, is is a chromosome disorder. And females have two X chromosomes and uh, girls with Turner syndrome. One of those X's is either missing or it's misshapen or something's just wrong with one of the X's. So depending on what's wrong determines how severe this Turner syndrome is. So the, the severity can really vary among these patients. And what it does is, again, that the severity can really vary, but it, it affects like the soft tissues of the body. Um, her muscles didn't quite develop like they should have. Um, the, the signals to her muscles didn't quite get to her muscles as quickly as they should have. But a lot of these things you probably wouldn't have noticed yeah. on her if, if you didn't know what to look for. So it wasn't blatantly obvious that, that she had this Turner syndrome. And it also affects a lot of other things. It affects the reproductive system. It can cause cardiac issues. So with her, she had some of the physical characteristics. She, uh, uh, her muscles didn't quite um, develop maybe like they should have, but she could still walk fine, do normal everyday things fine. She was maybe just a little slower than other people doing those activities. The two of you actually played softball together. Yeah, right. Yeah. She played softball. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And you had said when we met last time that she was not the kind of person though, that would broadcast like, Hey, I have this at all. Right. 
Right. Most people that knew her didn't know she had this. And I think that speaks to her character and just who she is as a person. She didn't want that to define her. Talk to me about what happened in um, 2017. So in April of 2017, she was, she felt kind of funny. She just felt like something was not quite right. She said she thought she had pulled a muscle in her chest And a week before, she'd had a really bad cold. So initially, we thought, oh, maybe she's developed pneumonia. You know, maybe she has some sort of, you know, really adverse um, response to this cold. Just progressively kind of started feeling worse. And um, she was in contact with uh, my, my parents about this. And for about, I don't know, maybe 12 hours or so, she just was feeling kind of just kind of off. And then, uh, then she rested for a little while and then just still didn't feel quite right. And, you know, her chest was hurting, but not like a sharp pain, just kind of this dull. She just kept saying like she pulled a muscle. Well, then she started vomiting. And that's when my mom suggested to her that, you know, maybe she should go into the doctor. So she called the clinic. They said, Oh, with those symptoms, you really should go to the emergency room. Okay. So she drove herself to the emergency room right away. You know, they started looking at things with her heart. So they had determined that she has probably had a heart attack. Wow. She was, she's 31 at this time. Um, And also another thing, when she went to the emergency room, she did not tell them that she had Turner syndrome right away. Because (laughs) That was just who Casey was. She, it wasn't, it didn't define her like we mentioned. So when you say she didn't broadcast it, she literally didn't broadcast. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The doctor, you know, eventually she told them and the doctor was like, kind of freaked out. Like, oh, that would have been good to know right away. (laughs) Right, right. But um, because like I mentioned earlier, people with Turner syndrome can have heart issues. And that was something that they would have looked for right away had they known she had Turner syndrome. But anyway, so they, and they saw that her left ventricle was really compromised. Like it really wasn't pumping blood efficiently. And that's the ventricle that pumps the blood out to the rest of the body. So obviously very important. But so at this point in time, I want to make sure I get this straight. She's in the hospital because she went to the emergency room, took herself there. She's mm-hmm. physically talking and interacting with the doctors. They've run tests and said, you you probably, it's likely you've had a heart attack. Yeah. yeah. And she's still interacting with them fully. Yep. Okay. Yep. That's exactly right. Because my mom called me at this time. And I remember it was a Wednesday afternoon. She had texted me. And had said, please call me when you get a chance. And my mom isn't one to say that unless like something's really going on. But I remember thinking like, oh, Dana, don't think the worst, you know. And actually what I was doing, I was finishing up my application to graduate school. Oh, wow. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to finish this. I'm going to submit it. And then I'll go call her. Mm -hmm. Because I'm sure it's, you know, I'm sure it's not as a big emergency as I'm dreaming in my head right now. Right. Because, you know, we always go to the work, you know, our, our minds often scenario. Go, yeah. And I'm like, oh, no, don't think that. 
Well, this time it kind of was. Um, right. So I called her when I got home and, and she said, they think Casey's had a heart attack and they're going to fly her to Sioux Falls. And then I, I almost like kind of started panicking really. And, and my mom is a saint and I'll say that a hundred times today. <laughs> she goes, Dana, it's okay here. I'm standing right next to her. She's fine. And she handed Casey the phone and Casey said, hi, Dana, I'm fine. <laughs> like, yeah. don't worry about me. It's okay. Cause she really didn't like being the center of attention. So she kind of takes you off the worst case scenario ledge. You're like, okay, I've yeah. heard my sister speak. Yes. Calm down a little bit and kind of yes. regroup. Yes. Yes. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So then I called my dad because I'm in Vermilion. So I'm kind of like the center point between my mom's in Yankton. My dad's in Northeast Nebraska near Hardington. So my mom and dad are going to come to me to meet and then we're going to go to Sioux Falls. So I called my dad just to see where he was and what time to expect him. And he had a hard time speaking. He was very emotional. So it was shocking to me to, to hear him on the phone like that. Mm -hmm. So we meet up, we go to Sioux Falls, go to the, um, one of the heart hospitals there. We eventually meet with the doctor and he told us how serious it was. And she'd had um, a heart attack, a very significant one. And the blockage was in her, uh, they call it the LAD, the left anterior descending artery. Mm -hmm. And that's nicknamed the Widowmaker. And I teach anatomy, so I knew exactly how... Detrimental that yeah exactly how how that's probably the last place that you want to have a heart attack. They did um, what's called an intraaortic balloon pump, which I didn't even know what that was at the time. Basically, what it was is is it's taking pressure off of the heart, so her heart can rest while it's trying to recover from this heart attack. So they said she was going to have to be in the hospital and lay basically perfectly still for at least 24 hours. And then they were going to evaluate her heart function. So, okay. With that, at this point, we're thinking she'd had this, you know, pretty bad heart attack. She's pretty sick, but she's stable. And we walk in and she's like, Oh, I, uh, I heard that I have some clots. (laughs) You know, she, she just says it like, just so like, kind of daintily and you know just she was drugged so she, you know she sounded drugged and and we're like uh yep so I I remember that because in my head I was like oh Casey it's it's bad like but she you know it's just kind of in this like la la land and which is actually kind of nice too because then it, it kind of um uh calmed us down a little bit too, I yeah, guess. For so, sure. um, so we got to talk to her for a little bit. Um, but she again was kind of, uh, tired and we knew she needed to rest. So my mom is going to stay in Sioux Falls with her. And my dad and I came home that night and then we were going to go back up to Sioux Falls the next day and kind of see how things were going. We, at that time, we didn't think that all three of us needed to stay up there. So I came back to Vermilion where I live and my dad went home. And of course it took a long time to fall asleep that night because I just kept thinking like, 
what is this going to look like? You know, what, what does a recovery from a heart attack look like? You know, I, I didn't know. I've never really been that close to someone who's had a big heart attack like that. So I usually sleep with my phone on silence, which maybe isn't the best thing to do, but I, I, that is what I normally do. But that night I kept it on loud because I thought, well, eh, just in case, but I really didn't expect anything. Well, at about 2.30 in the morning, my dad called me and said, Casey isn't doing very well. We need to go up there. And mind you, I had finally fallen asleep. So I'm like just waking up, you know, and right. hearing this. And and just, again, that shock of hearing that is indescribable. I mean, it, probably, it just... Probably feelings of like, what does not doing well mean? Like what yeah. on a, on a status of like zero to 10, like what are, what not doing well are we right. talking about right now? Right. You just have thousands of questions. Exactly. In your head. And then I was like, if they're calling us, like they think she's dying or like right. something is because I, I, I finally was, yeah. Cause those questions all came up right away. And then finally, so I had to wait for my dad we were going to ride up to Sioux Falls together. So I had about half hour, 40 minutes before he got to Vermilion to pick me up. So in that time I was like, Oh my God, like, this is, this is it. Like she, she didn't make it. You know, I, I was just coming up with these stories in my head. And in the meantime, my mom is calling me and I was like, Oh boy, I don't want to answer that call. Right. I do not want to answer her call right now because right. I'm afraid of what she's going to tell me. Mm-hmm. But I did answer like on the last ring <laughs> and she sounded very calm and she said, they have her stabilized. It's okay. I mean, still come up, but she's stabilized. It's okay. And tell dad that when he gets there. So I was able to tell my dad that, but we still knew like, obviously, things weren't good. I mean, they wouldn't have called if like, you know, she was in a little pain or something like it was much more than that. Right. We stopped at a gas station that was open 24 seven to just pick up something quick to eat. And I remember the, the woman working that night said, Oh, have a great day. And you know, it's just such a strange thing to hear because I was thinking, you have no idea like right. what we're going to do right now, you know. And so we get to Sioux Falls and um, things are grim. You know, things are not looking great for her, but she's at least stable. At this point, they had put her on a ventilator. So she's on life support at this time. So basically what had happened overnight is she she coded. So we get there and, and I remember before going in, my mom said, okay, she's on a lot of machines. Okay. Like she was trying to, to kind of give me a heads up of what I was going to see when I walked in there. Right. And I'm glad she did that, but there, there's still really no preparing you for, for what you see in those types of situations. She was on a ventilator. I'm sure there were other things or, you know, there were lots of cords and, and her color looked very bad. I mean, yeah. she she looked like she was on the brink of death. And she was. I'm so sorry. It must have been so difficult for you to, to see that. And, and kind of confusing because 
the last time you had seen her, she was still functioning. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. And then all of a sudden, within a few hours, she is, yeah, on her deathbed. So then at this point, they knew they needed to get her to Rochester, Minnesota, to the um, Mayo Hospital there. Yeah. Because at this point, they knew she needed significant work on her heart. Um, At this point, they're talking about an LVAD, which stands for a left ventricular assist device. Yeah. Which is basically a, a thing that helps your heart pump. And it's basically a bridge between that and a heart transplant. So we're thinking that she's going to Mayo to get that done. Anyway, I remember them wheeling her out. And um, I really thought that was the last time I'd see her alive, even though she didn't really seem alive at that time with all the things she was hooked up to. And her color was so poor and... um, So that was hard. I thought she could barely handle us just being in the room. How is she going to tolerate a flight? Right. You know, I, I really, I really didn't think she would. At this point, I decide that I'm, I'm not going to go to Rochester right away. I'm going to stay home and kind of sort some things out here and then I'll go in the next day or two. But honestly, part of the reason I did that also is because I didn't think she'd survive the flight. Mm-hmm. And I had this feeling that we would get the call while we were in the car that she didn't make it. Yeah. And I didn't think I could tolerate that. <laughs> right. I think that's important, though, because when when you're going through situations like this that literally involve a life or death moment everybody handles those situations differently. Yes. And your parents needed to grab stuff and get up there. And you in that moment listened to what your body and heart and soul and mind were telling you and said, right now a car isn't where I can be. And, And I think that's an important thing to point out because nobody wrote a playbook for how you handle these situations and you need to do what's best for you and your mom needs to do what she needs to do and your dad needs to do what he needs to do. And I just, I actually think that's a beautiful part of this story is that you're all okay handling it in your own way in that moment. I remember at the time I was very conflicted because in my mind, I kept thinking like, you should go, you should go to Rochester. Mm-hmm. And I've decided that that term should, should not be in the dictionary. <laughs> yeah. Like, 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 don't, don't, I've heard someone say, don't should yourself and don't should somebody else because that's not helpful. Like right. you said, like, that's, that's what I needed to do at the time. And my parents were fine with it. Like they were understanding and. Yes, I think that's a, a great way to to sum up that everybody handles things differently and that's okay. Yeah. I while I was back, I had a friend who um bless her soul, I had texted her what was going on and she took the day off of work and and came and helped me get things done that day. And yeah. You know, to this day, I, I can't explain to her like how much that meant to me. 
mm-hmm. that she would do that. Um, so Casey went into surgery right away that day and they did not do the LVAD because they actually thought that she could recover. She was a pretty healthy person otherwise for the most part. And so what they did is they put her on what's called an ECMO machine. And I don't remember what those letters stand for, (laughs) but basically what it is, is it's a machine that they pump her blood out to this machine and it oxygenates the blood and removes the carbon dioxide and then brings her blood back in. It's basically like a heart and lung machine outside of her body to help her body rest. So she made it through the flight, gets there. They don't do the procedure they thought they were going to do. They put her on this ECMO. Yep. And where are you at as all of this is happening and going on? Yep. So I'm still at home. Um, And so my, my parents are in contact with me. My brother lives in Vermont and my brother is a doctor. So he uh, has a much better understanding of a lot of these things than we do. Um, so he, he's trying to get a flight back here because originally he was going to go to Sioux Falls, you know, that's right. where he was originally. And then now he's got to switch to Rochester. So, you know, he's figuring all that out. So we're basically told that again, she's stable mm-hmm. <laughs> quotations around that term stable, right? but she's still very, very sick. Like she's in, she's in critical condition, but she's yeah. stable. I go to Rochester on Friday and things are still stable at this point. Um, I go with my aunt and uncle. They're saints also, by the way, for, (laughs) I was a, I was a total mess for like a five hour drive. And uh, I, uh, yeah, they were saints for um, (laughs) taking me and putting up with me. (laughs) Considering everything that was going on, I believe (laughs) you're allowed to be a total hot mess for a five hour drive. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I get to Rochester on Friday. My brother is there at this point. And so I, I, I get to see Casey and, you know, again, they had warned me that, you know, she's on a lot of machines. She's, she's sedated, you know, she, but, but she's okay. Kind of, you know, like she's, Mm -hmm. it's kind of this weird in between of like, she's okay, but yeah, she's very, very sick. Right. So again, I went in there and again, I was shocked at how she looked, you know, just machines and tubes everywhere. And I talked to her a little bit. I mean, I spoke to her. She couldn't talk back. Um, But they also did what are called sedation vacations, Mm -hmm. where they lessened her sedation medications a little and they would do like neurological exams during that time mm-hmm. just to make sure neurologically she was okay. So when they did that, her eyes would open. So then we could see her eyes and then we would talk to her too. And she'd follow us with her eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I remember at the time that was so exciting. Yeah. You know, and who would have thought that just her following us with her eyes would be so exciting, but it, it was. And I remember walking out of the hospital that night, I, I kind of uh, broke down, I guess. <clears throat> I remember my brother comforting me 
And we're not a very, uh, we don't hug very much in my family. We're just, (laughs) that's just not something we do, but we did that weekend. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He had gone through medical school. He has obviously seen very sick people and patients, but none of those patients had ever been his sister. Right. You know, so that, that changes things when it's your family member. Basically over the next few weeks, we have people in and out. Like I stayed there the first week. And then I came back home to work for about a week or two. I don't, you know, so that's kind of how our family did it. Like someone would stay there a week and then, uh, then someone else would go home. And then my brother had to go back to Vermont for a little while. And then he came back like a week, you know, it, for the next few weeks, it's kind of like people shifting in and out, um, which was hard because you wanted to be there. Right. You know, you wanted to be there for her in case something, in case things took another turn for the worse, or if they took a turn for the better, you wanted to be there. But yet we also still had all of our responsibilities at home. We had jobs. Yes. Yes. So, you know, life continues marching forward, even though time feels like it stopped in Rochester, you know, our world stopped in Rochester, but back home, everything was still going. Now, so she eventually gets to a point where she's doing a little bit better. Yes, yes. So over the next three and a half weeks, she slowly comes off of all those machines she was on. They take her off the ECMO about 10 or 11 days or so after she got there, which is actually kind of a long time to be on a machine like that. Right. Um, It can have long-term effects if you're on it for too long. But anyway... So that was, that was a big day when she got off that ECMO. And like, when we would hear that news, we'd get so emotional because we're like, oh my gosh, this is, this is going to be okay. Like she's getting better. She had had a pacemaker put in. I think she got taken off of that. Um, They tried taking her off the ventilator and she didn't tolerate it very well. So then they did a trach. They put in a a trach uh, to help her breathe. And when they did that, then she didn't have to be sedated as much. She could be mm-hmm. more alert. And that was the last week that, that, that occurred. So my mom is up there at the time. So my mom got to spend that week with her where she was a little more alert. And at this point, we're starting to think and talk, kind of talk to the doctors about, you know, what, what happens after she's in the ICU, you know, right. she'll be probably in the, in a regular hospital room for a little while. And then she'll have to go probably to some sort of rehab hospital because she's been bedridden at this point for about three and a half weeks, you know, so, it takes- so you're starting, what I hear you kind of explaining is you're starting to go from mentally to this could end at any moment to mentally, let's start at least thinking about what recovery looks like and what the steps are for Casey to get to a point of home or a place that will help take care of her while this is all going on. And I imagine- and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a mental switch of going from like, it could be end of life any moment to then allowing yourself to think about recovery and home. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And and they always tried to balance like the optimism, you know, yes, this is very, very good. But still remember, like she came here because she had a massive heart attack. It's got to be 
again, confusing in your brain because you're hearing them say, oh, she's doing better. And then at the same time, you're like, and still very, very sick. And you're like, yes. which one is <laughs> exactly. it? Is it better or is it really, exactly. really bad? Exactly. And sometimes we get kind of upset because we're like, no, we're focusing on the good. Like we're focusing right. on the good things happening. And also I, I have forgotten to mention up to this point, but the heart attack that she had was actually a unique one. It was not caused by plaque. It was called a spontaneous coronary artery dissection, abbreviated SCAD. And basically what that is, is the, the artery, the layer of the artery tore and blocked blood flow to the heart tissue. And that's what caused the heart attack. Oftentimes it's plaque in there that, you know, you hear about, but this was a tear in a coronary artery, which supplies the heart with oxygenated blood. So very, very rare, but that is what they determined when she got to Rochester, when, when she um, was put on ECMO, you know, cause you know, you don't hear of a 31 year old having a heart attack, you know, it was just so the fact that it probably was due to her Turner syndrome affecting her soft tissues, you know, affecting her vessel being torn like that, that's what caused this heart attack. So, yeah, so that was something we found out right away when she got to Rochester. So it's always been described as the SCAD. So that, yeah, that was what caused um, her heart attack. So, yeah, so about three and a half weeks, she's doing great or well, <laughs> relatively speaking, compared to where she started there. Well, when you, I, I want to talk a little bit about this because you and I met two weeks ago and kind of just went through the highlight, low light reel. I hate to say that, but no other way to say it of right. your story. And when you were explaining what was going on with your sister, I was definitely picturing worst case scenario, like you're mm -hmm. saying. And then afterwards you send me some pictures and so I'm looking at a picture here and I hope I'm not jumping you way too far ahead in your story, but of you and is that your mom? Yep. And yep. then Casey and Casey is actually outside of the hospital <laughs> yeah. in a wheelchair. Yep. And so I think it's good. I'll, I'll post this on our social media because this was not at all what I would have pictured based <laughs> right. on what you said was going on. So I get that confusion of she's doing well, but she's still obviously very sick. So I, I went on a weekend to Rochester. Um, this is uh, May 13th at this point. So almost exactly a month since, since this started. Mm -hmm. And my mom was up there at this time. And yeah, Casey was much more alert. We could talk to her. She could smile at us. She could mouth words to us, which were kind of hard to read, but <laughs> we tried. And on that Saturday, they actually got her up in a walker. It was a wow. heavily assisted walker. I mean, she walked a few steps and that was too much or that, or that was enough for her. Mm -hmm. So yeah, she had a great day that Saturday uh, yeah, we took her outside in that picture. That was the first time she'd been outside in about three and a half weeks. You know, so she just, she, she loved it. Probably a huge blessing for your soul after these long three yes. and a half weeks of just, yes. there's something about 
fresh air and getting those glimmers of hope that keeps you going where, okay, maybe, maybe we can recover from this and we are taking steps in the right direction because we literally took steps outside. Like, yeah. Yeah. So we, yep. Had that little trip outside. It was great. Um, I spent the evening with Casey at the hospital. Um, once we got back to her room, she's still in the cardiac surgical ICU at this point, but, but we're kind of starting to think about, you know, what the next step is. I was there during the, the uh, shift change between the nurses. Cause she had a nurse in her room 24 seven. Yeah. So that's how serious it was. Right. Um, I remember talking to the nurses about like, okay, when can we have a meeting with her care team and kind of see, you know, what the next steps are. And they're like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll get a doctor in here. And well, in the ICU, things change very quickly. So we, I wasn't able to talk to a doctor that night, but that was fine. I might have gotten a little sassy with the nurses, but, um, uh, but not too bad. Right. <laughs> um, but I remember Casey, you know, at this point she can, she's alert. She, mm-hmm. <laughs> so she heard me get kind of a little irritable. And <laughs> I remember like I went over because I was kind of like in the corner with the nurses. And then I went back over to Casey and I said, sorry, I did that. And <laughs> she, uh, she mouthed to me, it's okay. <laughs> so, yeah, which is just, she always did that. I'm definitely more of one that kind of overreacts to things and she's always very calm, cool and collected. So it was totally fitting that I might've overreacted a little bit. And then she's like, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cute. Uh, We went to bed that night at about two 30 again. um, My mom got a phone call that Casey again was not doing well. (laughs) I remember my mom waking me up and telling me that. And I was like, what, (laughs) what do you mean? She's not doing well they would only call us if things were really bad. Mm-hmm. I don't remember everything my mom told me, like before we went over there, I just knew we got up quickly. We changed our clothes quickly and got over to the hospital as fast as we could. Mm-hmm. And again, my mom being the saint that she is was thinking about me also because she oh. said, just so you know, there's going to be a lot of people in her room. And I'm glad she told me that because that would have freaked me out because there were probably, I I couldn't even guess, 10 to 15 people in there, which is a ton more than there usually were. Right. And I think at this point, my mom had told me that they were doing compressions on her, but I can't, I can't remember when that all occurred. Anyway, when we finally got there, people just turned and looked at us and just kind of stared at us, the, the providers in the room. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what, <laughs> you know, I was like, tell us something. Right. You know, I was kind of angry actually. <laughs> and then one of them told us to come in the room at that time, they kind of split and we could see Casey and I could see someone doing CPR on her. Mm-hmm. And I've only ever seen that on television, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, where they're barely like pushing on the chest. And this time someone was on top of her, Mm -hmm. pushing so hard 
that when they pushed down and came back up, Casey came off the bed. Like it was so forceful. Mm-hmm. And my mom and I saw that once we saw one compression or like one kind of round of it. And we ran back out because we couldn't see that. Like mm-hmm. we, that was too hard to watch. Mm-hmm. So then the doctor, he was an Australian doctor. He had the best accent. We always enjoyed when he was working. He was the overnight doc that night. And he finally found us just outside the door. And he said that they'd been doing compressions for about 15 or 20 minutes. And they didn't know what happened. They, they had no idea. All of a sudden, the nurse that was in there noticed that Casey's eyes weren't following her as much. She checked for a pulse, couldn't find a pulse. So just all of a sudden, Casey very quietly, like, kind of stopped responding. Right. So they had no idea what it was. He thought maybe a pulmonary embolism. Her Also, it could have been he suggested that her heart wall was very thin due to the damage. You know, that actually could have even torn open the actual heart muscle, possibly. You know, they they didn't know. But we had to give them the okay to stop compressions. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that was too long for someone to go without blood flow to the brain. Mm -hmm. So I knew that even if she did somehow come back, she wouldn't be Casey at that point. So Mm -hmm. so we we told them to stop and. and then all of those workers, all those providers cleared out. And then it was um, my mom and I in there with her. And I think one of the nurses stayed for a little while. And and then they left. And, and then it was just my mom and I. And we were just kind of talking to her and just holding her hand. And um, very, you know, surreal. And sh- again, that term shock doesn't really adequately describe what that felt like. And then they also had a, a, a chaplain, I believe, came in and prayed with us. And so that was comforting as well. And I am so sorry. I I mean, we talked a couple weeks ago and I've experienced a death situation too. And I know they're all different, but there's just nothing. There's, there are no words to, to comfort you or to say other than I'm sorry, because I Mm -hmm. cannot imagine how, how you went through that. It's this weird combination of a blur, but yet very distinct memories of it also Mm -hmm. like right now I can I can visualize my mom and I in that hospital room Mm -hmm. her and the chaplain coming in and then deciding at what point do we leave you know I I didn't want to leave because then to me that felt like that made it real right and that meant you know this all really happened right and my mom kind of wanted to leave quicker than I did Mm-hmm. So it was, and I just went with my mom and, and it was fine. And really that was the best thing to do. There was nothing more to do. Right. And that's what my mom understood at that point. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't quite caught up there. Right. Well, you're um, probably still in this 
we were just outside. Like we were literally just outside what happened, what in the world, just what did we just see? What did we just witness? What did we just experience? Right. What did we just have to give them permission to do? Like, yeah, it's just this floating place of billions of questions that don't have any good answers. Yeah. Right. And then it's like, who do we call? And do we call them now? It's three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, do we call? My dad was at home at the time because that was just, like I said, we'd been in shifts of being in Rochester right. and he was at home. And do we call him now? Do we wait till seven? You know what? And we did end up, my mom called him and uh, which I, I, I thought was the, the right thing to do. And then he called my brother at that time, but we waited to call our grandmas until the morning. Cause we thought we'll let them sleep, <laughs> right? get one more good sleep until <laughs> right. they know. And then uh, when my mom and I left, we had to meet with some woman. I don't really know what exactly her title was, but basically she was there to ask us if we wanted an autopsy done. And if we wanted to, um, basically donate her heart to research. Mm-hmm. And I work in education and I, you know, I, and I have a lot of family members who are healthcare providers and, you know, we, we knew how important researching something like this would be. So, mm-hmm. so we did. Mm-hmm. Um, so they kept her heart for research and we, unfortunately we can never know what study she was a part of or her heart was or what was written about it. I kind of wish we could, but we can't, but anyway, but we had to make those decisions Mm -hmm. within a half an hour of what we had just experienced, Mm -hmm. you know? So that, that was something I I never knew occurred. You know, I, I, we had to say what funeral home we were, we were going to work with. And I just remember being like, what the hell? Why are we talking about a funeral home? And my mom, again, being the saint that she is, she made a lot of those decisions that needed to be made for mm-hmm. Casey. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how she did a lot of it, but she did. So yeah, after we met with um, that lady, we just walked back over to our hotel, <laughs> you know, and it was such a different walk than we'd been back and forth between that hospital and the hotel hundreds of times in the past few weeks. Right. And now all of a sudden that was our last walk. (laughs) That was our last time crossing that street. And um, by this time, the people who worked the front desk, like knew us, Mm -hmm. (laughs) we were like buds, (laughs) especially with my mom, because she'd been there so much. So then we had to pack our stuff and go home. Mm -hmm. And I remember, again, I wasn't ready to do that. Like, I didn't want to go right away. Mm -hmm. I wanted to stay because I thought, once we go home, we're going to have to face this reality that she's not here anymore. Mm -hmm. And my mom was the opposite. She wanted to get going. And I think because she knew there was a lot to be done. Right. Where I didn't want to face it. And she she knew we had to. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, and we had separate cars. So we both drove the five hour drive home. So that, that was hard too. It it was hard, but yet it was 
almost kind of nice. Also, I don't think I even listen to the radio and I'm a huge music person. I just, I needed quiet and just still dealing with that shock of what we had just experienced overnight. And I think that grief, like shock is a really great word for it because no matter what, it's a shock. Even if like she had been on her deathbed and then all of a sudden is doing better and then all of a sudden it happens, you you were kind of like knew it could happen, but weren't expecting it to happen. And that shock, it, it, you, it can't be described to somebody who's never experienced it before. And then the journey I think that follows is so difficult, no matter when or how you experience it. And then confusing as well, because how you experience it may be completely different than your mom or your dad or your brother Bryce. And Talk to me a little bit about that because I think there's there's a relatability here in just for people who've experienced something like this in your story and in your journey in the way that you've talked to me about grief and what that experience was like for you in like the first days and weeks after your sister Casey had passed away. Mm-hmm. I... I had to talk about it and I'm still kind of like that, like verbally processing what had occurred where some of my family members didn't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly everybody was, it's not like anybody like stopped me from talking about it or any, you know, it's not like it started a fight or anything, but, um, but you could just tell, you know, some people would kind of shut down a little bit where I just wanted to talk about it. Um mm-hmm. My mom and I had a lot of conversations about what occurred the night she died mm-hmm. um, because that that truly was a traumatic event. And at the time, I think we didn't maybe even realize that mm-hmm. just because with everything that was going on, you're not really processing it where almost the further away I get from that night, the more I realize that that has actually really affected me. And in, in those days and weeks and months after, you know, the, the first few weeks, people show up, people come visit, people bring you things and so kind. And so many people came to her funeral and just was so wonderful. But they have lives to get back to also like right. their, their, their world didn't stop like ours did. And then all of a sudden, you're just very, you feel very lonely. Mm-hmm. And even when those people were there and came to the house and so, you know, were physically there, I still felt lonely because I thought, you know, it was my sister, you know, it was, it was my mom and I that were there when, when they were doing CPR on her. It's, and, it's a, it's a loneliness that can't be described any other way than to say that you could be in a room with hundreds of people that you love and that you care about, but the one person that you want isn't there. And therefore it's a loneliness that, that can't go away. Yeah. There's, there's no end game. I mean, there's no, yeah, it, right. Exactly. It can't go away. That's a great way to explain it. And, you know, we, I still remember a lot of people came over after the funeral and, um, 
I just kept looking around and thinking, oh, she would love to be here. Yeah. She would love, we had family members from both sides there and both my mom and dad's side. And, and she just would have loved that. She wasn't a huge talker or anything, but she loved to just listen to people and just be around people. And so, yeah, it was just so, so heartbreaking that, yeah, she, she wasn't there. So you talked a little bit about how your time stops for you. And then at some point for everybody else, time resumes again. Like it stops for a little while for the funeral and for immediately after. And then all of a sudden you see people going back to their normal life. And in grief, going back to normal things like daily tasks can seem difficult, daunting, or even at times completely insurmountable. Like you Mm -hmm. just can't. Talk to me a little bit about that for you. When everybody else started going back to their quote unquote normal life, and then suddenly you're like, well, I guess I have to go back to my life too. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you? it really ramped up that loneliness feeling, mm-hmm. you know, when, when I'd go back to work and all I could think about was what had happened to our family and to my sister. And yet, and people at my work were very, very understanding. They, they were great. You know, they, they supported me and they supported my leave time during all of that. They were, they were really great, but, but, it, but still, regardless of how supportive they were, it, it was still hard to come back. Some of the things I, I teach anatomy and physiology. So I teach the things that ultimately went wrong for my sister. Right. So it was hard to come back and talk about those things and try and be excited about coronary circulation right when I knew when I had heard a doctor tell me that my sister had a heart attack in in her LAD or like if they asked you know I remember people with students would ask me things about heart attacks and all I could think about was oh I've seen how ugly they can get right I've seen the worst of them really And then I had started graduate school that August of 2017. Mm -hmm. So a couple months after Casey died and my graduate program was basic biomedical sciences. So my first course was a physiology course. So I learned in great detail about um, cardiovascular physiology. And then I took a pharmacology course, you know, about drugs And we talked about heart failure drugs. And I remember when Casey was in the hospital, they kept saying she'll be on heart failure drugs for the rest of her life, probably. Mm -hmm. And it has to almost feel like it's just in your face constantly reminding you of what you went through. And while other people in the same position as you who didn't have that happen are just like, we're just learning about the body and we're learning about drugs. You're like, no, I'm constantly being reminded of how my sister died and this freaking sucks and it's hard. You know, I love physiology. I've always really enjoyed it. And now all of a sudden it has this really real component to me of what happens when it doesn't work right. Right. And yeah, you know how the body is supposed to work. And then what what about when it doesn't? Right. Right. Yes. Right. So when we spoke last time, you mentioned 
that something was very helpful for you when you were going through your grieving process, that your dog was always there. Talk Mm -hmm. to me a little bit about that. Yes, yes. I had the cutest little dog. His name was Fallon after Jimmy Fallon. Oh. And because I love Jimmy Fallon. And he, I lived by myself in Vermilion here. And when I'd come home from work, I just wanted to go lay down in bed and just forget about all the terrible things and forget that we were grieving and just kind of shut out the world. But he, (laughs) he would let me do that sometimes because I think sometimes you need to do that. You know, I think it's okay to do that sometimes as long as you don't do it like all day, every day. Right. But he was like the perfect companion because he'd let me do that sometimes, but then he also let me know, Hey, we need to go for a walk. And he'd get kind of wild. I'm like pulling on your shirt or something <laughs> yeah. like, go, yeah. come on, day yeah. time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He'd start like, yeah, dancing around, getting all wild. And I'm like, yeah. okay, let's go outside for a little bit, you know? And, and he'd always greet me when I got home. He was so excited. And that just lifted my spirits. Cause at that time I thought, I didn't see happiness anywhere, really. Right. You know, but when I got home, he seemed happy to see me. So that brought that brought me joy during that time. And I think yeah. in grief, it's just sometimes those simple things, yes. like a dog being super excited to see us <laughs> yes. when we get home, that gives us a reason to keep going because you want to go back to that place where time stands still because if time stands still, the memories are still close to your heart. And the more time that goes, the farther away those memories get. And that I think is the difficult part of grief is you want to do anything and everything to keep that person alive in any way you can. And that's through memories. That's through smells. That's through closing your eyes and being able to physically picture exact moments in time, even if they're not good moments, you still do that to keep those memories as close to you as possible. And so when you're going through something like that, the small things like a dog or something bring you back to life and bring you small glimpses of joy that help you get through those moments where you just want to scream at the world and say, everybody else needs to stop because my world stopped. A sad part of that story is your dog has since passed away as well. How mm-hmm. about a year after Casey passed, right? Yeah. 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 And what was that like for you? It was devastating. And he was young. He was only like three years old. It was totally unexpected. And it it just gutted me. And he was just the, the, I I don't want to say the one thing that helped me through, because there were lots of things, but he was a huge part of helping me through those really dark days. He saw me at home when I just couldn't function Mm -hmm. and nobody else saw that, you know, nobody saw those days where I just bawled and bawled and bawled and could barely get out of bed. Mm -hmm but he saw those days and I know he's a dog, but he also helped me like get out of bed. You know, he had to go outside. He had to, he was my responsibility and he was, he was, it's like he always knew when I needed a few extra cuddles or something. And, 
And then for him to just be taken away from me so quickly um, from an, it was an illness. It's not even like he got run over or anything. It was just a weird illness that he had. And that I got really angry after it actually, because I'm like, really, <laughs> can't I have this one thing that, <laughs> right. That brought me joy during this time. So, and luckily the, people closest to me knew how important he was to me and really supported me during that time also. Um, and he was also another connection between Casey and I. Yeah. Casey had watched him for me sometimes. She, you know, helped, she had a dog also. So, you know, we'd always talk about, you know, how do you train him? How do you, you know, we just always shared things like yeah. that. So it just, just felt like I lost another connection to her. So that's hard. And yeah. I know something else that you've mentioned in emailing back and forth since our last conversation that you've struggled with letting people in because death is inevitable. Yeah. You know, it's it's the one certainty in life is is death. And talk to me a little bit about that struggle with allowing people to get close to you. Mm-hmm. after this like you said the death is inevitable and for a, a while that's all I could think about were with the people in my life was oh my gosh they're they're gonna die someday mm-hmm. you know I just that's all I, it's like it's all I could see for a while and I kind of wanted to close myself off from people because I thought oh I know how hard it is to lose somebody Mm-hmm. And maybe if I'm just not as close to people, then it won't hurt as bad. Right. <laughs> Which is that lie or that story we tell ourselves inside of our heads. Like, I won't get close to anybody. Therefore, I will not hurt. Yeah. Yeah. It, right. Exactly. But then you're not close to anybody. You know, it's it's it's, it, it's not really beneficial. And um, I started dating this guy about a year ago now, about in 2020, and it it was it was hard to to let him in and and to to let him see um, kind of what I've been through, and because I, I just kept thinking, well, I can't get too close to him either because I'll lose him at some point, right? But but then the flip side of it is, well, but then I'd never know him, you know, then I'd, right. I'd never get close to this wonderful guy. And um, I still remember, because the, the question also is, when do you bring this up that I lost <laughs> my sister, you know, <laughs> it's not really a first date conversation, right? But yet, I'm also somebody that kind of just spills the beans all the time. Oh, me so. too. I'm laughing because I've been there, girl. I get it. <laughs> but our mutual friend actually would say to me, you know, maybe you should save that for like a like second or third date conversation or four, maybe fourth, fifth, sixth date conversation. Right? Yeah. I'm like, no, yeah. they can't handle this. They can't handle me. Exactly. I need to know right away. Yeah, exactly. So I remember with him, I, I, I think I've told him a little bit, but I didn't tell him the whole spiel for a little while. But I do, um, when I did tell him the whole story, basically the story that I just told here, Yeah, I, I was sobbing. I mean, I was just a mess. It's not coming out of my nose. I mean, it was just like, 
I was a hot mess. And he just accepted it. He didn't try to to interrupt or he just let me tell the story. He got me some Kleenexes for the snot shooting out of my nose. (laughs) And he was just, he, he handled it exactly how I would have wanted him to handle it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my favorite songs in the whole world is by Andy Grammer and it's called the good parts. Mm -hmm. And basically what it is, he talks about, um, um, Uh, one of the lines is lead me to the part of you that never really heals. And I've always kind of put that together with Casey. Like that's the part of me that will never heal. Mm -hmm. And if, and if you can't handle that, then you can't handle me or, you know, then this won't work because that's something that is going to be a part of me for the rest of my life. And you just need to accept that. And my boyfriend does. He he lets me talk about it when I need to talk about it. He lets me cry about it when I need to cry about it. So, so let me ask you a question. And we didn't talk about this last time, so this is totally off the cuff. I presume by you telling him about what happened with Casey that he never met Casey. Right. right. Is that – so my boyfriend never met my son who passed away either – is that something that you struggle with? Like you so badly want him to know her as much as he possibly can, even though it's physically impossible because she's not here. How do you navigate that? Yes. Yes. It's so hard. I think about that all the time because I would love to know what she thinks about him, you know, and I, um, and he says it a lot too. I wish I could have met her. Yeah. You know, and, um, yeah, it, it is really hard because I, you know, when we're talking about things, I, then I think about her and how she would um, be participating in this. And and it's actually kind of funny because he actually has some mannerisms that she had. <laughs> so, like, he doesn't always shut the cupboard door. And sometimes Casey is like that. And <laughs> they both, like, if they're saying something that's not really nice, that's not very nice, which isn't that often, but they'll whisper, they'll whisper it. Oh, <laughs> like even if it's like just us two at home and I'm like, you don't have to whisper it. They're not here <laughs> in case you would do that too. So it's like, he has these little reminders of her also. So that's kind of funny that, that I, I see that in him as well. And I think that's the beautiful part about when you find someone who truly cares about you they allow you to keep those memories alive in whatever capacity you need to. I mean, for me, it's been, you know, they're almost 13 years since my son passed away for you. It's been what now are we at fo- almost four yeah, almost coming up? Four. On four. Yep. Yep. So there are days where I want to talk about my son all day, every mm-hmm. day. Like if that's all I could do that day, it would be the best day ever because it keeps those memories alive. And when you find mm-hmm. those people who really care about you, I've found they're good at knowing this is just a day where Dana needs to talk about Casey and Dana yep. needs to share about Casey. And that's perfectly fine with them. And there's such a beauty when you find that or have those people from already previously in your life where they know that 
Dana just needs to talk about Casey today and let's just talk, let's laugh, let's talk about the mannerisms, let's talk about the even the bad moments because that's how we can keep their memories alive. I want to, and I know we've gone over on time, but this has been great. So I want to cover two things and then I have a couple questions for you. One we talked about last time, which is Something that has come up very often for me, walking alongside people who've lost family members, I always say we're a part of the club you don't want to be a part of. So somebody who's lost a family member, nobody wants to be a part of that club. But once you're a part of that club, you under I understand you in a way that somebody else can't understand you and vice versa. Yep. But we talked last time about anniversaries. And let's just talk about approaching those dates, whether it's one year, two years, three years. And when people say anniversary and they haven't lost someone, they're often thinking just about the day that you've lost someone. But an anniversary means so much more to someone like you who's been through a three and a half week life or death process, mm-hmm. or to me who went through a three and a half month life or death process. I think there are some expectations, whether we place them on ourselves or other people place them on us surrounding anniversaries and how we should behave or feel or interact with people. What are your thoughts on that? You know, that first year, there were a lot of those firsts, you know, first birthday, first Christmas, first. And yeah, those were hard. Those those were Um, anticipated to be hard, you know, leading up to that first Christmas. And then her birthday was right after Christmas. I kept thinking, oh, this is going to be so hard without her. And it was absolutely. Mm -hmm. But it actually wasn't quite as hard as I thought it was going to be. You know, it's still, it was hard, but yet it was also, it made me kind of happy to think about, it made me think about her, you know, it brought her back into our life in a way, mm-hmm. but was, but what was even harder was just those random firsts, like the first Husker football game without her mm-hmm. or the first, you know, I first Husker volleyball game or first, first softball game that summer, you know, that she, she and I used to play on the same team, you know, just things like that, that you maybe weren't anticipating would be so hard do really um, affect you. Or you mentioned even when you drive past someone who's driving a car that was the car that she drove. Yep. It it really is. It's the random moments like that where grief is the unexpected always. Mm -hmm. It's it's unexpected and it's shocking no matter when it hits you, whether it's Mm -hmm. a day out, a year out, 13 years out. Yeah. It just hits you at moments when you least expect it. Mm-hmm. Yes. But I think that's okay. Like, I think we can place this pressure on ourselves like, oh, the anniversary is coming up. I better be really, really happy and celebrate. Or I better be really, really sad because otherwise I'm not a good person because I didn't love him enough or love her enough. And just so many expectations and really just feeling whatever we feel in the moment is okay. Yes. Yes, exactly. 
So one other question I want to ask you before I get into the two closing questions I always ask is, and this is not a trick question, (laughs) I promise (laughs) it might sound like a trick question, but what do you tell somebody who's wondering what they should say to a person who's lost someone who's very close to them? Mm -hmm. I think it's always good to say their name to say the name of the person that they lost, Mm -hmm. even though it's hard, it's so much easier to not address it. Right. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier to that, that make, that makes you feel more comfortable probably to, to not bring it up. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's that saying of, you know, you think you're upsetting somebody by bringing up the person that they lost, that you're reminding them that they lost them. Mm -hmm. And in the reality, you're not reminding them. They never forget who they lost. Mm -hmm. But by you bringing up their name and sharing a memory or just anything about them, just reminds the the person who lost them that their loved one made an impact on Mm -hmm. others. And other people have memories with that person that you maybe didn't know about. Mm -hmm. So just holding on to any of those, I think is good, no matter how uncomfortable it might be to, to bring up. I just, I just think that's always a good idea. And yeah, the, the, the person who lost them might cry and might seem upset, but that's just, that's just how they're responding. You know, sometimes you can't help when those tears come out. (laughs) And like, if we never feel those tears, tears are healing. Like they need to come out sometimes. Right. Right. Exactly. Yes. Is is there anything else just on your journey with grief or your story or Casey's story that you want to share before I ask you my two closing questions? Mm -hmm. Losing her really reminded me how good of a person she was. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I always knew that about her. I knew she was nice. She's way nicer than I am. (laughs) (laughs) But after losing her was really when I thought about just all the things she did for me, that she did for my family, that she did for her friends. And it just has really reminded me to just be a good person Mm -hmm. and that that's the most important thing. You know, yeah, she, she, maybe couldn't play sports as well as the rest of us, you know, what, that's not important. That doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. What matters is how she treated people. And my family has seen that so much since she's passed. We've heard so many stories of her just doing kind things for others. And she was very close with the people she worked with. And that's just been so comforting to hear those things. And it's just reminded me to just, to just be a good person. I, I, Agree with that so much. Be a good person. Be kind always comes to my mind. I'm thinking of you and your dad driving up to the hospital and stopping at that gas station and something simple like a woman saying, have a good day. Yeah. just never know what someone is going through right now. And that's why we need to be good humans and be kind and have empathy and have understanding that if somebody snaps you never know their sister might be dying. You know, we don't know what's going on with other people. And I, I love, I love what you've shared. I love the story that you've shared with us. I do want to hear your answer to these final two questions. Number one is if you could go back in time and tell a younger version of yourself, one thing, 
what would you say? I would tell myself to spend more time with, with your loved ones. I mean, yeah, Casey specifically, but just because you never know when, when you're not going to get that time again or that opportunity again. And, and to just be kind and understanding, because like you just mentioned, you don't know what, what people are going through and, um, and everybody grieves differently, you know, so you don't know what it's like for, for those people who are dealing with that loss. So my last question for you, we like to try and close on, on something happy and joyful is what brings you joy today? spending time with my family, um, my parents, I've become very, I was always close with my parents, but I've become more close with them. Um, and also I have gotten a different dog since my other one passed away and spending time with that dog. I really, it brings me joy just because it's, it's a simple, simple happiness. So just spending time with those that I love and that includes my dog. (laughs) I think that's beautiful because when time stops, when we lose someone, it gives us a whole new appreciation for the time that we do have with Mm -hmm. the people who are still Mm -hmm. in our lives. And so Dana, this was a beautiful conversation. I want to thank you so much for sharing. I know it's just me and you, but you know, lots of listeners as well. Uh, for being brave and and sharing this journey and for being so open about grief and your grieving process because there's no right or wrong way to do it. So thank you for joining us today. And I am so glad that our mutual friend introduced us. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your work of, of normalizing difficult conversations because everybody has one. Everybody has a difficult story and a difficult time they've been through. And I think it's good to, to encourage people to, to normalize those things and, and know that everybody's going through something. So thank you also. Yeah. And thanks for being a part of uh, helping us do that because it's conversations like this between me and you that are going to help normalize these conversations for more and more people in the future. So awesome. All right. Thank you. For more information about our nonprofit organization, Could Have Been Me, please visit itcouldhavebeenme.org. There's more to come next week. Thank you.